Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. I'm Jan Dawson and my co-host as always is Aaron Miller. We're going to do a news roundup for you here at the beginning as we usually do. We'll talk about the uh, Samsung Galaxy Note 7 reviews. We will talk about the launch of Google's Duo uh, video app and we will talk about Apple's uh, creation of an R&D center in China that was uh, discussed this week following a visit by Tim Cook to China. Uh, we'll then move on to our question of the week, which will be our, our central segment today. And the question today is, why does Twitter seem so stuck and how can it unstick itself? And so I'll be answering that question in several parts, as we usually do uh, as the middle segment today. And then the third segment, we're going to do something a bit different today. We're going to talk about what Aaron and I use. Uh, and mostly here I'm talking about uh, the technology that we use to get our work done, but we'll also talk a little bit about technology and other th services and things that we use in our personal lives. And this builds a little bit off uh, a blog post that I did almost a couple of years ago now, actually, on the Beyond Devices blog just called What I Use, because I kept getting asked by people what I was using to generate my charts and to, to make slides and so on. And so uh, I put that post up a while ago, but uh, I've been thinking it'd be worth updating it at some point soon. And uh, I just thought it'd be interesting for us to talk through that. We have our weekly picks every week uh, where we recommend single items. And usually these are kind of things we've recently started using or discovered. Uh, but this would be a kind of deeper dive on, on the stuff that we use. And we hope it'll be A, interesting and B, perhaps provide some ideas for things that you might use as well. So that's the kind of agenda for today. And then we'll wrap up uh, with a weekly pick. Uh, as we usually do as well. So starting with the news roundup, uh, this week the reviews for the uh, the Samsung Note 7 came out. We talked about the Note 7 a little bit earlier, I think. Um, but uh, the reviews came out and generally very uh, positive. Um, I saw several reviews referring to it as the best Android phone that you can buy uh, or the best big phone that you can buy. Um, you know, certainly the best note that there's ever been um, was a, a consistent theme throughout. Um, Joanna Stern at the Wall Street Journal did her review underwater, um, sort of showing off the waterproof uh, side of things. Um, but there was lots of interesting stuff there. Aaron, was there anything that stood out to you? Uh, I just, I, I think it's, I think the idea that they have this best-in-class Android phone is is just fantastic for Samsung and for Samsung users. You know, people who are loyal to the brand. I think it's great that they have such a strong phone. the the uh, The sad counterpoint is, I just it still keeps cropping up that people keep complaining about Samsung's implementation of Android yeah. as as a, as kind of a an anchor around the neck of their devices, which is which is too bad. Yeah, no, I saw that theme emerge in several places. I think Business Insider kind of said this is great, but it's not the best phone out there because the way Samsung does software is is just subpar compared to iOS. So. I think it was Steve Kovac that wrote the review, but basically said, I, I can't recommend it over an iPhone, for example. So that's, that was kind of a consistent theme was Samsung software implementation continues to kind of hold their devices back somewhat and, and prevent them from being the very best phones out there. Although I, I did see some people suggesting this was the best phone you could buy. But clearly a really solid entry from Samsung and, and a good compliment to the other two high-end high flagship phones they have out there already. Um, let's talk about this Google Duo app. This obviously something that was announced at I.O. earlier in the year and we talked about a bit back then. Uh, my take on it back then was that both Duo, which is the kind of FaceTime equivalent, and Allo, which is their messaging, new messaging app that hasn't released yet, um, were entering the market very late and were unlikely to, to gather significant share because of the sort of network effects and things that are out there. And people seem to be driven in this stuff much more by network effects than they are by individual features. But this is a very stripped down messaging app, a video app, excuse me. Uh, it's available on Android and iOS. Um, what was your take on this, Aaron? 
Well, I, you know, I think the biggest struggle that they have is the way that it's not baked into iOS. Um, I could picture Android users starting to use it and getting excited about it, but it's the same kind of blue bubble problem that anybody doing messaging, you know, uh, has a hard time penetrating into. This is at least the problem Google's have. So they, they don't have like, and when I say blue bubble, I'm making reference to the fact that when you're doing, you're using iMessage with another iMessage user versus just SMS, you know, you see their messages coming in in a blue bubble. Uh, this doesn't feel like a blue bubble kind of app to me. Right. Um, and in fact, I think if anything, there's got to be a group of, of uh, Android users and just Google users generally that are annoyed that uh, Hangouts kind of got deprecated in the process of this. Right, right. Which, which seemed like a weird sacrifice to make um, uh, because it feels like, okay, Hangout users, those have gotten used to it and are good at it. Here's something new and different. By the way, it's right. also stripped down. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure that, that it feels like that move is kind of hanging over it in a cloud. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's been a consistent theme in the communication space that Google has too many apps and that they seem to kind of overlap quite a bit. And the, the public communication around Hangout seems to be that it's being pushed off into the enterprise space. And, you know, if you know Google, if you've ever attended meetings with people at Google or, or been part of internal meetings at Google, or any Google subsidiaries, it's true at Motorola, for example, as well, even though that's now part of Lenovo, they use Hangouts very heavily for meetings. Um, and so that seems to be the way that Hangouts is being pushed as kind of this enterprise kind of video conferencing solution rather than a consumer product, whereas uh, Duo will become kind of the consumer video product. Um, and of course, it's not available in the browser or anything like that. It's a mobile-only app for now. It's supposed to be better at degrading gracefully when the connection's bad, but the reviews uh, seem to suggest that wasn't the case either. So it's got very little going for it, and it's not even going to be baked in on Android, at least for the time being. It's going to be a downloadable app through the Play Store. So uh, again, it seems kind of funny, but classic Google in some ways. Right. It, you know, I wonder how long it'll be around, or at least I wonder how long it'll be before there's a substantial change to it. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, or if it gets killed at some point. Um, so the third news roundup story was Apple's um, building an R&D center in China. And this is part of a visit by Tim Cook to China, I think his ninth visit to China. Um, and this is part of a kind of a theme from Apple over the last few years, really, with App Apple's uh, seeing China as kind of one of its two biggest markets, along with the US, um, and uh, making investments there. And obviously, the, the DD investment earlier this year was a very significant one. We, I, don't, I haven't seen any numbers around this R&D center and what the cost of that might be, but it's another investment, and this one very much in employing people in China as well. So feels like this is very much part of this overall picture of carrying favor with the Chinese government and with the Chinese people, but um, you know, it's also obviously China's a very large, highly skilled, uh, relatively inexpensive labor market. So if you're gonna be investing in some of this stuff, China is a logical place to do it. So there's good business sense. And in that sense, I think it's a bit like the DD deal in that it, it pairs up several different positive things for Apple. Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised me about this uh, Tim Cook China trip, and I guess this is in contrast to his previous two Asia trips to India and China, this trip seemed to get a lot less PR surrounding it, uh, especially considering the R&D center being an announcement there. Yep. I, I I wish I was more plugged into to the Chinese media to, to know how big of a deal it was over there. Mm. Um, I, I I also think you know I mean Apple. Apple had a down quarter, in China, you know, relative to previous performance, 
and it's so funny to me how people so quickly can like translate that into into losing over there right and and so an announcement like this i don't know if it's just to to signal i mean because timing matters in these announcements too and it could have been a month from now or three weeks before now and i wonder if there was also just some signaling there but with apple saying look you know you know we are committed to china there's no we're not leaving we're not going anywhere we're staying and we're we're deepening our commitment and investment here right yeah and it's it's a funny investment too because it's r&d center thing the wall street journal reported on it here in the us and it was citing i think the state news cctv over in china um, I haven't seen a press release from Apple on this at all. And there's a quote from right. an Apple spokesman in the Wall Street Journal piece, but it also says Apple declined to provide further details on the research center, including its location, expected headcount, and the total amount the company will invest in the effort. So I wonder if it was something that was kind of mentioned as part of the visit, but that still needs to be fleshed out. And maybe that's why we haven't seen the detail. But yeah, I absolutely buy what you're saying about the timing. That makes perfect sense. All right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said at the beginning, the question today is, why does Twitter seem stuck and how can it unstick itself? And so uh, a usual format for this stuff is one of us goes away and thinks about and researches a topic and then the other one uh, asks the questions. And so that's kind of how we get through this topic. So I'll be answering the questions today and Aaron will be asking them. So this question obviously assumes that Twitter is stuck. So let's justify that assumption, Yan, and start by asking, you know, what are the signs that you see that Twitter is stuck? Yeah. So the the most obvious thing is user growth. So, um, and this is fairly well known at this point, fairly well established, but, uh, you know, Twitter's stuck at just over 300 million monthly active users. Um, It doesn't report daily active users, but they've historically been somewhere around sort of 50, 60% of that. So could be under 200 million daily active users at this point. Uh, but they, they, they're at 313 million MAUs at the end of Q2 this year. They were at 304 million last year, so 9 million added in the past year. If you go back a year or two, uh, they were adding 50 million users a quarter. So they've gone from adding 50 million users a quarter to uh, very much less. Um, and so uh, it's been, you know, an obvious trend for some time now that user growth really has slowed to almost nothing, and, and that doesn't seem to be changing much. Um, but even beyond user growth, there's a monetization question, and um, it's always a bit tricky because uh, this stuff is cyclical if you're in the ad business. But um, Twitter saw a decline in U.S. revenue and ARPU from Q1 to Q2, which they don't normally see. Usually it grows steadily throughout the year, uh, spikes in Q4, which is always the biggest quarter for any ad business, and then drops in Q1, and then it starts climbing again. This year it dropped from Q1, Q4 to Q1, and then dropped again from Q1 to Q2 in, in the U.S. So um, there's a sign there that monetization, which has been the kind of one bright spot, seems to be struggling a bit in the U.S. at the moment as well. So that's a bit worrying. And then the most obvious thing from the perspective of Twitter users is that product really hasn't evolved meaningfully in the past year. Yes, they've launched Moments, um, and that's a new feature, but it's primarily for people that aren't heavy Twitter users. Uh, There's been very little meaningful evolution at all for people who already use Twitter, and Moments is sort of an add-on. So it doesn't change the core Twitter experience at all. It's a new tab in the in their Twitter app. Um, doesn't obviously show up at all in third-party apps. Um, but the core Twitter experience really hasn't changed at all over the past year. And uh, despite both promises by Twitter that it would and clamoring from people that it should. So between user growth, monetization, uh, the product you know, just seems to be moving extremely slowly at the moment. There just doesn't seem to be a sense of urgency at Twitter. 
So talk more about that idea of Twitter moving slowly. Uh, I mean, what you, you know, what what exactly do you mean, and what are the signs of them moving slowly in terms of the product? Yeah, I think this has been an issue for several years now. I think it was a frustration under Dick Costello that um, their execution was just poor, and then things to take seem to take a very long time. But I think a way to make it more concrete is to look back a year or just over a year to July 2015 when Jack Dorsey had his first earnings call as the interim CEO. Um, and I wrote that up at the time. I wrote a, a post for the Beyond Devices blog, and we'll link to this from the show notes. But um, my sort of subhead on that piece was that Jack Dorsey's audition went well. Um, you know, there's a lot of worry about him as interim CEO, whether he'd do a good job. But I came away from that call feeling like, okay, he really gets it. And there'd, there'd been this palpable sense with Dick Costello of kind of denial. You know, there is no problem. We don't need to solve the problem. Um, with Dorsey, you know, that first call, and his share price went down afterwards, you may remember, because the, he was just so frank about what the problems were. But I, I found that refreshing. Um, and I, he was realistic about user growth and how poor it was. He was realistic about the product and its shortcomings and, and how it could be hard to use, especially for new users. Um, he seemed to be more focused on users of Twitter rather than advertisers, which always seemed to be Costello's main focus. And he seemed to be really clear about what Twitter should be. And, and he had this great analogy that he used on that call, and I'll, I'll quote from the transcript here. But um, he said, what should you expect from Twitter? You should expect Twitter to be as easy as looking out your window to see what's happening. You should expect Twitter to show you what's most meaningful in the world, delivered first before anyone else, straight from the source. And you should expect Twitter to keep you informed and updated throughout the day. And that just seemed to perfectly encapsulate what Twitter was about. Um, and so I, w I thought that was very promising. And the actual structure of his comments was around three major points of what needed to change at Twitter. And so the first was about ensuring more um, disciplined execution. Uh, the second was about simplifying the service to deliver Twitter's value faster, especially to new users. And then the third one was better communicating Twitter's value. And so that seemed like a great agenda. Uh, and yet, if you look at what's happened since then, so it's been just over a year now since then, they really haven't made much progress on that. Um, if you look at that first bullet, ensuring more disciplined execution, well, they did make some layoffs in October. Um, but you know, the overall headcount still, I think, a little over 3,800. And if you look at where Facebook was when it had 3,800 employees, it had 800 million users. And Facebook's a much more complex product than Twitter is. And so the fact that um, you know, Facebook was more than twice the size with all the complexity of the Facebook product and the rapid growth that they were going through with the same number of employees that Twitter has now is just a sign that there's still a lot of people at Twitter and you wonder what they're doing. You know, and a lot of them are obviously tied up in sales and that kind of thing. Um, but the ones that are focusing on product just don't seem to be getting a lot done. So from perspective of disciplined execution, it just feels like there could be, uh, they could be doing a lot better. Um, in terms of simplifying service, there was a reference in the earnings call comments that time around um, to what was then called Project Lightning and ended up becoming Moments uh, within Twitter, which I've already talked about a bit. But there's been no simplification of the actual core Twitter experience. You know, really haven't delivered on that at all. Moments, as I mentioned, is an add-on. Moments is, as the name suggests, about individual moments in time. It's not something that you can use on an ongoing basis to track a topic, because it's very much based on news items and things that are hot right now. 
And so if you want to follow the NBA, for example, or if you uh, are interested in movie making or if you are a soccer fan or uh, if you want to um, you know, follow the presidential election or anything like that, uh, there's no way to follow a topic like that on an ongoing basis within Twitter uh, still. The, the, the core model is still what it's always been. So again, the service itself hasn't really been simplified. Um, and then better communicating Twitter's value was the third point. And, uh, they did have a couple of TV ads towards the end of last year, but they were both about moments. So again, they communicated somewhat the value of moments, and I'd argue even there it was pretty debatable that it was really all that valuable because they were very focused on, I think the first one was focused on Major League Baseball, the second one was focused on the NBA, but they just kind of had lots of memes and things like that. It didn't really tell you anything about what you could use Twitter to, to learn about something, to, to see what the score was, to follow a game, to be social about it. it. It was a funny focus for me, and I really didn't feel like those did a good job. And beyond that, there doesn't seem to be any real effort to communicate Twitter's value better, even though, as I said, in that earnings call, Jack Dorsey had this great encapsulation of it. And, and clearly, they get what it is, but they're just not very good at communicating it publicly. So. Uh, in the meantime, they seem to have been distracted by all kinds of other stuff. So there's this pivot to live video and these investments in, in live sort of professional streaming video. Um, there's been talk since January about removing the character limit um, or at least excluding certain things from the character limit. And this week I was in a Twitter thread with six other people. There were literally 53 characters left over after all the usernames uh, to actually write something. And it was a fairly nuanced conversation. It just didn't work. And you know, if you just remove the usernames from the character limit and, and excluded those along with links and media and other stuff as they've promised to do over six months ago now, that would solve that problem and yet they haven't done it. Um, there's the whole abuse and harassment thing. Um, so BuzzFeed's had a couple of good pieces about this. It's been in the news because of a couple of high profile users that have been facing a lot of abuse lately, but it's something that's been going forever. Um, you know, another thing is ad advertising issues and so they've had problems for ages uh, with uh, making the ad product good enough, making the analytics good enough, really justifying the prices that they charge for their advertising and on the earnings call this quarter they talked about our prices are too high, we can't get people to pay our prices and so we're struggling. Um, and it's, again there's been a known problem for years now and they don't seem to be fixing that either. So um, just lots and lots of stuff here and there and everywhere where they've identified problems, they've said they're going to work on it and there just seems to be almost no progress over time in actually executing on that stuff. Yeah, in fact, it's funny as you were going through that, that none of the things that Twitter has done feel like they resemble at all the Jack Dorsey vision that you were describing. Right. I mean, like none of that seems to be manifest in any of the new features or products that they've been working on. So, I mean, stickers are kind of the perfect example of that. In fact, there's there's a fun little pun in our question of the week, right? About Twitter being stuck and trying to get unstuck because they're stuck by making stickers. So I, I guess I guess the question is, you know, what do they do? Yeah, and what what does Twitter do to to get yeah. themselves unstuck? Yeah, and I, I think there's a, there's a really important principle that has to be at the heart of Twitter strategy in general. And I wrote a piece about this a while back on on the Beyond Devices blog called the Two Twitters. And this is the key, really, to understanding Twitter and how it works and how it has to evolve, is there are really two Twitters. It's easy to think it's obviously one company, it's one core app, and so on and so forth. But there is a very hardcore base of users, and I, I count myself among this number, who use it very frequently, very heavily, who tweet themselves a lot rather than just following other people who essentially create the vast majority of the content on Twitter 
uh, that, that is then consumed by this other group that probably uses it less frequently, that doesn't probably tweet themselves as much and mostly consumes other people's stuff. Uh, and so those two groups have very different needs. The, the power users need power tools, if you like. They need analytics. They need to be able to uh, read you know, long, long timelines and catch up quickly and easily and so on. They, they want to be able to manually curate their feed very carefully, pick individual accounts and so on, use muting and other things like that to kind of tweak things as necessary as they go along. They, they need these things like uh, excluding media and so on from the the uh, character count so that they can cram more into a tweet. We look at the other Twitter, they just need it to be really simple. And, and the fact is the people that Twitter wants to add to get to the point about user growth, they're in that second group. They want it to be simple, they need to be easy, they need the values to be immediately apparent. Um, and the whole uh, key, as I say, to user growth is providing what both of those groups need. And I think to a great extent, it probably means splitting the user experience to some extent. And that may mean two separate apps, one for power users, one for regular users. It may just be different experiences that you can kind of tweak and customize within the app. But Twitter needs to do what it takes to attract and to build both of those audiences without breaking the experience for the other group. You need Twitter one, uh, which is the power users because they are creating most of the content, but you want to feed Twitter two and grow that base because that arguably that's, you know, the rest of the world is, is only really a candidate for being that, at least in the first instance. And so that's the, the kind of fundamental principle here. I think when it comes to Twitter One, it's basic stuff. So the stuff they've already talked about, removing stuff from the character limit, maybe even lengthening the character limit a little bit, or doing something interesting with uh, text where you can expand a tweet to see full text if it's longer, uh, but certainly excluding usernames, media, links, and all the rest of it from uh, the uh, the character limit would, would be a big deal and would go a long way towards pleasing those users. I'd argue that Twitter ought to scale back advertising for those users, and there's been some evidence in the past that if you're a verified user, you actually see less ads or few or no ads at all. Um, and I think that's a really great way to keep those users happy and engaged with the platform. Uh, I use a third-party client, so I don't see ads anyway, but uh, I think that would be helpful. But then I think the main focus has to be on uh, the topic, uh, uh, taking a topic-based approach. So what they've done with moments is created individual moments in time where there's a series of maybe a dozen tweets that fit into that moment and that kind of encapsulate very quickly what's going on in that particular area. The problem with that moments approach is it, it only works for things that are kind of hot or in the news and you consume it within less than a minute and then you have to move on to the next thing. And so if you're interested in a topic in any kind of depth or if you're interested in following it over time, it just doesn't help at all. And the only way to really follow a topic right now is that you pick topics when you first sign up and then you get presented with these long lists of accounts to follow. And you still have to individually choose to follow these accounts. And, and so if you say you're interested in basketball, there'll be the, all the official NBA team accounts to follow. There'll be various high-profile players and then maybe if you drill down far enough, you'll get the more obscure players after that. You might get... Um, you know, the, the Yahoo sports guy who, who's one of the main kind of reporters on the NBA, you might get uh, Bill Simmons, you might get somebody else who writes about the NBA, maybe you'll get uh, a TV show from ESPN about the NBA. Um, but you have to follow these accounts individually and it's just really overwhelming. You don't know who's going to be any good or not because all you see is the handle and the description. 
Um, and so what you really need to be able to do is say, I'm interested in the NBA. My favorite team is the Cleveland Cavaliers. And then you get a curated feed that's about the NBA in general, but skews towards the Cavs. Perhaps you get more tweets from LeBron James than you do from Steph Curry. Um, you get more stories about them showing up. And it just a uh, combination of human and machine curation. But you go topic-based. You say, I'm interested in this. And then you get a series of sliders that say, I want to say, I want to see more tweets from players. I want to see fewer from the ESPN or whatever. And you get to kind of customize that. And then you're off, you're off to the races. And every time you log into Twitter, you say, show me my NBA feed. And there it is, you know. And so this it's kind of like watching TV in that sense. You want to be able to say, I know that this channel specializes in this topic. And I'm going to switch to that channel. And it's always going to show me what's going on in that particular area. And then I want to be able to switch channels. This is one of the things that's always been kind of funny about Twitter is if you follow uh, accounts that relate to different parts of your life, you'll probably have some work stuff. You might have maybe some family and friends in there. You might have something about local politics. You might have something about the sports teams that you follow. And it can be quite jarring sometimes. There's a natural disaster happening somewhere. And so you're seeing a tweet about all the people killed by the storm. And then right next to it will be something about the Oscars or uh, you know, your friends talking about a play date or, or whatever it might be. It can be quite jarring. And I think the ability to kind of switch channels could actually be quite nice. So not just a topic-based feed, but the ability to actually switch between these channels easily so that you can focus on what you're interested in right now. Uh, I think that's really important. And I think that's the single biggest thing that Twitter could do to, A, make the sign-up process easier and more obvious what the value is. Uh, and that means changing the model of following individual accounts and moving towards a topic-based feed. Absolutely, they need to preserve the account-based option for, for the power users and anybody else who wants to use that. But they need this alternative. And I think that's the single biggest thing they need to do. Um, the third big thing is, is tackling abuse. Um, and that's been in the headlines a lot recently. It's still a major issue. It's something that Twitter said that they're very concerned about and they're dealing with. And they just don't seem to be able to deal with it. And BuzzFeed had a great article about a week ago about that really went in-depth about this. And I think they had a follow-up piece this week that was noting that the Olympics coverage that uh, was unapproved was taken down extremely quickly, whereas abusive tweets still weren't being taken down anywhere near as quickly or at all, which just kind of highlighted the sort of priorities at Twitter. And so there's just this real sense that Twitter isn't taking abuse and harassment seriously enough. And this is a problem in two ways. It's a problem, obviously, for the users who are affected by it because they leave. Um, but it's a problem from a PR perspective, too, because nobody wants to join a service that becomes known for harassment, especially if you are in one of the communities that's most likely to be targeted. And that especially applies to women. It likely applies to uh, dissidents, political dissidents in various places. It will apply to people in the LGBT community. It will apply to all kinds of people in various minorities, racial minorities as well. Um, and so this is a problem they really need to deal with fairly urgently and just don't seem to be doing well enough on that. And then, you know, I think having fixed some of those things, they need to go back to that priority that Jack Dorsey outlined, which was about communicating Twitter's value better. And right now, you see individual tweets pop up on the news and all kinds of other places, but Twitter isn't out there communicating why you actually use Twitter, the product, rather than just seeing tweets quoted in other places. And so, again, I think that the ad campaigns, it was good that they had a TV ad campaign or two last year, uh, but they were very focused on moments, and I think they need to be more focused on core Twitter experience. There's probably dozens of other stuff that we could mention as well. Uh, but I think if they focused on uh, the 140 character limit and fixing that and expanding it and excluding stuff from it for the power users, if they focus on creating and maintaining a topic-based approach through a combination of human and machine curation, 
for less power users, uh, if they tackle abuse, and then if they communicate the value of all of that uh, better publicly. I think that would go a long way to solving some of their problems and getting them back to growth. So a lot. Of th those are all fantastic ideas. I, I would sign up for pretty much every single one of those. Um, but but as you're talking through them, a thought occurred to me, and this is maybe a, a small question that we can wrap up with. Do you, do you feel like it was a mistake then for Twitter in retrospect to have built themselves on third-party apps so early? I mean, they had their API out, and they really actually for a period encouraged third-party apps and then a few years ago realized that they're going to have a really hard time building a full-feature platform on the back of third-party developers, and so they started scaling that back aggressively. They still have the problem of a lot of power users preferring third-party apps like TweetBot. So, so I mean, and I realize this isn't a going-forward thing, although maybe it is, but, but do you feel like it's a mistake for Twitter to have allowed and continue to allow third-party apps? Yeah, I think the biggest problem on that has just been their schizophrenia about it. Um, you know, as you said, it's kind of evolved over time. Obviously, it was the only way to access it on a mobile device early on. Um, and then they started acquiring and building their own apps for it. Uh, and, you know, and yet still encouraged the third-party apps for a time. And then they started to clamp down on them once they felt like their own apps were good enough. Um, and yet they never have shut them down entirely. And so they've done weird things like rate limits and other stuff like that where... Um, you know, that effectively killed a number of Twitter clients uh, a couple of years back. And yet, as you say, TweetBot and a number of others are still out there. You know, pick your smartphone platform. There are likely a handful or more of major Twitter apps that are still used by a large number of people. And their biggest problem is that they can't serve ads to those users. And so uh, I never see ads, even though I'm on Twitter all day long, because I use TweetBot on my Mac and I use TweetBot on my iPhone and sometimes on my iPad. Um, and I never see any ads. They don't make any money from the fact that I'm using it all day long, and hopefully they make some money from the fact that a number of people follow me and they are seeing ads and so on, but it's very indirect. Um, and yeah, so third-party apps get in the way in that sense, and yet third-party apps tend to have been where all the innovation is and around creating new features. You know, at replies and uh, quote tweets and all kinds of other things on Twitter that have been baked into the core experience started out as features of third-party apps, as sort of desire paths that people built where there wasn't an official way to do something and that have over time been incorporated into the, the core Twitter experience. So it's a double-edged sword for them at this point. They could kill them all off. They'd obviously uh, really uh, displease a lot of users by doing that. They'd obviously kill off a number of businesses that are built off the back of it. They would stimulate advertising, but they'd probably lose a lot of the innovation around Twitter uh, that's come from outside Twitter itself by doing that as well. So I think on balance, they're best off keeping them at this point. But if you could wind back time, you'd probably say, you know, they needed to have a much clearer policy on third-party apps five years ago um, and, and kind of take a more consistent line on it since then. Well, thanks for that. That was a really great approach and, and way to think about it. I, I, unfortunately, I'm, I'm a little sad at the thought that a lot of those things probably won't happen. I know last week you mentioned the idea of Twitter, you know, being a good target for acquisition right now. But it would take a pretty visionary acquirer, I think, to 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 take the company in and, and make the changes that you were talking about. So anyway, yeah. thanks. That was a great question of the week. Yeah, thanks for asking the questions too. Yeah, I mean, I, we we should talk about that at some point. Like, who might acquire Twitter given the valuation right now? We're out of time on this segment today, but it's a whole other topic that'll be interesting to talk about. So I just mentioned that I use TweetBot on the Mac and the iPhone and the iPad, and uh, that kind of brings us nicely into 
our third segment today, where we're just going to talk about the things that we use, the tools that we use to, to get our work done, but also the things that we use in our personal lives and the focus on technology, so hardware, software, services, and so on. Um, this will be fairly unstructured. We're just going to kind of launch into this and talk through a few things. Again, I mentioned that I, I have a post up on the Beyond Devices website called What I Use, where I do outline some of what I was using back in late 2014, and so I need to update that. But uh, a lot of that will still be true. But Aaron, why don't we start with you, since I've just been talking quite a bit. What hardware do you use to get your job and your personal life done, as it were? Sure. Um, so my probably the device I spend the most time on is my iPad Pro. <clears throat> um, before that, I had an iPad Mini. Um, the bigger screen size was a little hard to get used to at first, but I'm now very comfortable with it. I, I think the reason I say I spend most of my time on that is because I do quite a bit of reading on it. Um, a lot of my reading is actually news feeds. I have a, a finely curated RSS feed that I have hosted by Feedly that I really like. Um, and I've got it categorized in various ways. Um, obviously, I have a lot of tech news that I'm interested in that uh, you know we get to talk about on the show. Um, I also have a, a, a set of feeds that I call Save the World that incorporate a lot of the things that I do professionally <laughs> involving things Great. like social entrepreneurship, philanthropy, and other things, uh, business ethics. Um, for for my news feeds, I guess, so So that's my iPad Pro. I'll get into the software I use for all that stuff later. But um, So that's the iPad Pro. I also have an iPhone 6S. I've been on the S upgrade cycle uh, for years now. I, I like that better, I guess, you know, than the, the non-S upgrade cycle because I feel like you get a more mature device. Um, I'm really curious what next year will be like um, because it sounds like, you know, the 7 is not going to be a big update, but the next one might be a huge one. So we'll, I guess, have to see what happens with that. Um, as a service provider, I use Sprint for my iPhone, which I really don't like very much. But I get a screaming deal through BYU where I teach, where it's something like $32 a month for unlimited everything. And so as long as I'm in an area, which is the, which is the great majority of the time, I get great coverage. It works, it works great, and it's really nice having unlimited data. Um, the downside is, uh, you know, occasionally we go camping or other things, and, and that's when, you know, I drop out miles and miles before people with AT&T or Verizon do. Um, as far as my computer goes, I am using a five-year-old, and, and a, lot of, a, a lot of listeners already know this because they know that I'm really excited about new MacBook Pros and have been for over a year now. I'm using a, a 2011 MacBook Pro. I mean, to put in perspective how old this is, I can still play a DVD on my laptop. And so, <laughs> um, right. yeah, yeah I, I, I use that. Uh, I like having a laptop because I like being able to bring it um, home, you know, because uh, I do find myself working at home, especially in the evenings and, like, if there's a lot of grading to do. Um, at work, I plug it into a Thunderbolt display, also a very aged device. Um, but I like the way it looks and I like the way it works, especially because this is the, the I mean, I, I guess I have to use the word newer one, <laughs> the one with the mm -hmm. Thunderbolt connector. Um, so that way I really just plug in power and Thunderbolt and then all my peripherals at work on my desk, you know, my backup drive, uh, uh, the microphone, keyboard, all that stuff, that all that stuff just gets plugged in through the Thunderbolt cable, which I absolutely love. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that's kind of it hardware wise, I guess a couple of other things I, I, I use at work. I have a pair of Jabba Revo Bluetooth headphones that I use quite a bit. 
Um, I like them mostly. I wish I had gotten over-ear headphones instead of on-ear ones, but that's just because I wear glasses, and uh, glasses can be uncomfortable for long periods if you have over-ear or on-ear headphones. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess the other thing I have that I really love is my standing desk, which I think I recommended before in a in a um, uh, in a, a, a recommendation of the week pick of the week. Just in just in case you didn't, which one is it? Do you know what it is? Uh, no, I've forgotten the brand. Oh, it's a Jarvis uh, a standing desk. And what I actually did is you can buy just the, the, the stand without the tabletop. And so the just the part, the mechanical part that goes up and down. And I actually had a friend help me, and we got a tabletop from Ikea and finished it with a really nice spray. And so I actually have a wood uh, in, in, instead of a laminate tabletop, which I really, really like. So mm, Nice. Okay, cool. Yeah. And do you use that standing most of the time, or are you kind of switch back and forth? Or? I'm about 50-50 during the day. Um, okay. You know, I, I usually stand, for example, when we're recording, because um, I oh, like, okay. I, you know, sometimes during questions of the week or other times I kind of pace around my office just to keep the blood flowing. But, um, yeah, so I'm about 50-50. I like, it's really convenient moving it up and down, and, and so I really like that. Right, cool. Yeah. So right. we have a we have an Apple TV at home. I guess that's the other thing I should yeah. mention. So. Okay, cool. So yeah, I, mine's mine's slightly different. My setup. So my main computer is a Mac Pro. Um, it's 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 the mid two thousand ten version. Mid two thousand ten version. It's not quite that old, but it's that version of the Mac Pro. Uh, it's a re this is the old sort of silver uh, rectangular version, not the trash can version. Um, it, it was really maxed out when I bought it. It has uh, 32 gigs of memory. Um, it has, uh, I think, 12 cores um, and uh, a very good graphics drive and all the rest of it. And the reason I have that is not to do the work that I do now, but for a while my wife and I were building a company where we were making videos and uh, I was doing a lot of editing and Final Cut and such, and so we needed a Mac Pro that wouldn't take hours and hours to render stuff. So. We bought a pretty maxed out computer back then, and uh, I've been using it ever since, basically, for both that and then when that shut down for, for my main work as well. And so uh, I've been using it for years. It works great for the most part. Um, starting to get to the point where certain of the features in newer versions of um, Mac OS aren't necessarily supported. Things like Bluetooth um, LE support wasn't there, so things like handoff don't work quite as well as they might do. Um, but uh, but for the most part, works very very well, and it's it's a real workhorse. Um, when I'm not at my desk, um, which I usually am, unless I'm traveling or something, and uh, when I'm recording podcasts, when I find the fan noise from the Mac Pro is too loud, I uh, use a MacBook Air, um, and it's uh, it was current two years ago when I last wrote about this on the blog. It's it's a little out of date now, but it's a 13 inch. Uh, MacBook Air, it's um, just fine for everything else that I do. It's nice and light to travel with. Um, has enough ports that I don't have to deal with any dongles or anything like that for the most part. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's it. And then I, I have an iPhone. Um, I have uh, an iPad Pro 9.7 inch on loan from Apple at the moment. That's been my main iPad recently. I've got various older iPads sitting around that I, that I basically stopped using at this point. But uh, the iPad Pro is my go-to sort of reading something type device or sort of sitting in front of the TV device if I want to have a, a second device around to you know look stuff up on or uh, keep up with work if I'm watching something or whatever. So that's kind of the combination I use most of the time. What about software? And what do you, what do you use for kind of writing documents or, or putting together presentations? Do you use kind of the Office 
Suite or iWork or some combination of those or Google? So uh, it depends on the documents. Uh, if any writing that I'm collaborating on, I find that I keep getting pulled into Microsoft Word. And that's just because the review features in Word are really powerful. It's, it's actually pretty robust when it comes to collaborating. In fact, we recently yeah. used, for the ethics book, for the field guide that we talked mm. about last week, we use Word, but also through Dropbox. And Dropbox has nice syncing and collaboration features that get baked into Word that make it so that you can avoid conflicting documents and things like that. Right. It lets you know if somebody else has it open, uh, has a file open as you're working on it. Uh, Dropbox uh, combined with Word, uh, well, I don't know if it's necessarily Dropbox combined with Word, but also in academia, Word is easily, you know, the dominant, Standard. dominant right, Word sure. processor. Yeah. That said, anytime I'm designing a page um, uh, for consumption, so handouts I prepare for class or, um, or you know, really anything else. I, I much prefer pages. I, I, I like the sort of quasi-page layout, word processor approach that, that pages takes to that, and so I use that a lot. As far as presentation goes, I am an avowed, dedicated, hardcore keynote user. And uh, I, I teach a lot with slides. Um, I try to keep my slides uh, very simple and, and minimalistic, but um, also nice looking. I like the features of having a, if you, you know, occasionally I'll teach from my, well, I'm about half and half between teaching from my laptop or from my iPad. And the nice thing about using Keynote on the iPad when you present is that you've got drawing and laser pointer features built in, which are also really handy because it makes your slides much more dynamic in the classroom. My big complaint actually is that Apple doesn't allow the, the, the drawing features to be part of a recording. Because often what I'll do is I'll record my slide deck as a as like an online lecture, you know, 15 to 20 minutes long, and I'll post that on YouTube ahead of the time. I usually do that when we're covering complicated material, like about the, you know, the the federal tax code or or something like that. And so, right. so uh, you know, but Keynote I find works is is just I, I guess it's after having used it for so many years, it just feels like second nature to me. I, I feel like I can pull off just about anything I want to using Keynote. And so, in fact, if there's one app that I'd be really, really sad to, to lose, it's that. Um, I mentioned earlier about how I keep up on RSS. I have like a, a finely curated RSS feed, you know, collection of feeds that I've been cultivating for years. Um, I actually, so on, on my Mac and on my iPhone, I use Reader. It's spelled R-E-E-D-E-R, -E which I think is yep. probably the most popular RSS reader on the Mac and, and, and I, iOS. It's actually not my favorite one on the iPad, though. My favorite one on the hmm. iPad is called Mr. Reader. And okay. uh, when you first start using it, it feels like it's got kind of way too many features baked in. Um, but once you kind of get the hang of it, I find it's actually a lot easier to use than Reader, and I also think it looks nicer. My favorite, favorite, favorite thing about it is as I'm scroll as I'm reading through feeds, um, this has this great thing where you slide your finger over from either the left or the right of the iPad screen, and it pulls up a little navigation menu where you can go up an article, down an article. If you were following some web links down through web pages, you can go backwards or you can exit out of sort of the article viewer and go back to your list view of your feed. And it's really super convenient being able to just swipe your finger from the edge to navigate. Um, you know, in Reader, you either have to tap this tiny little arrow button at the bottom of the screen, or you have to swipe all the way to the end of an article to get up to the next one. And, and okay. I, you know, I rarely, for most of my feeds, I'm just skimming, you know, and then I'll stop on the, the ones that I feel like are worth my attention. And, 
and, and but if you want to skip a long article, it's kind of a pain that way. And I love that really quick navigation action of of Mr. Reader. So that's actually the one I prefer. In fact, I wish they had an iPhone client and a, and a Mac client, but they don't. Yeah. It hasn't been super popular though, so it doesn't surprise me that they haven't, you yeah. know, made made it for other platforms. Um, you know, I use Tweetbot as well on on all my devices. I really like the way it looks and works. Um, and uh, uh, I also use Slack, um, which kind of makes me unique at, at BYU. Um, uh, well, that's not true. A lot of the students are using Slack for informal conversations, groups of friends, things like that. But a lot of what I do at BYU involves managing uh, programs that we have. One of them is called Grantwell, for example, where we have students who do consulting projects for large donors like f uh, corporate foundations and things like that. And uh, and Slack for that has been fantastic because it essentially empties out my inbox of anything Grantwell related. Instead, it's all self-contained within the Slack platform. Um, mm. And I just like the way that works for communication. So I'm actually going to be expanding Slack or my use of Slack to a few other student programs that I work with because we had a really good experience with it last year. So we're going to keep using it and start using it more in other places. Great. Fantastic. And so you said, I think, when it came to RSS feeds, you maintain the actual feeds in Feedly, which then right. feeds stuff out to Reader and Mr. Reader, respectively, on different devices. Yeah, it does make me nervous because yeah. I have no idea how Feedly is making money these days. Right, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it was Google Reader before, which was really convenient. Right. And Same Google here. didn't seem yeah. to care losing, about losing money off of it. Feedly has mm. very quickly taken that same role of right. being this essential backbone that everybody forgets mm -hmm. is there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. no, I'm the same. So I, I have the same setup where I use Feedly. I use Reader on all my devices. I really like it, actually. So I'm interested to hear that the, the things that you don't like about it. But yeah, I, I use that and use that to keep up with tech news. And then I have a whole separate set of feeds. It's actually in a completely different account that I use for stuff in my personal life. I used to have them all in the same, and I just found it kind of a pain to have them both in the same place. I kept being interrupted by work things when I wanted to look at personal stuff and, and distracted by personal stuff when I wanted to look at work stuff. So right. separated the two, which works quite well. Um, I, uh, I use Tweetbot as well, as I mentioned earlier. I don't use Slack. The TechPinions team used Slack for a while, and we stopped doing that. And uh, we found that mostly it was for such simple messages that we just kind of tweet at each other now instead, and that seems to work quite well. Um, I use Evernote for note-taking. Um, have done now for years. I used to use OneNote back in the day, but when I started um, having a more diverse set of devices that I worked with, and it basically was stuck on my Windows PC, then it, it didn't do me any good. At this point, they're obviously very good at uh, syncing across a whole variety of devices, but I made my commitment to Evernote a long time ago, and it would be very hard for me to change now. Do you use a specialist app, or do you use Apple's Notes app, or do you use... So I use Evernote also, but I've been kind of cool on it lately. Um, hmm. It feels like they've been making some kind of user-hostile moves, uh, obviously, because they're trying, trying to drive more people away from the freemium side and more to the paid right. side. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I, I did... So I had a former student who's doing a PhD who has been using Evernote for years, and he recently decided to try to make the switch to Notes, and he ended up going backwards on it. I, I think the the one feature that I would love for Notes to add this next time around, and so if anybody from Apple is listening, mm -hmm. I, I think they need tags. Um, right. It's just yeah. a really essential way to organize. Um, yep. You know, if you have to stick everything into folders, it's really fiddly, and unfortunately that's the mm -hmm. only way to organize Notes right now in Apple right. Notes. Yeah. If they did that, um, well, and then if they also had an easy way of capturing web links, that's one of the things I use Evernote for 
pretty consistently, mm. especially if I'm doing a research project where I'm collecting like articles, you know, from journals or other things. Evernote is fantastic for that kind of capture. You know, over the years, Evernote has essentially been my anything bucket. You right. know, there's this idea of an everything bucket where it's where you mm. stick everything, your brain's there. That For me, that's not Evernote, but it is my anything bucket. So if I okay. if I need to capture something and I don't have another place for it, it, it t- tends to all go into Evernote. Okay, yeah. No, I, I, I use Evernote a ton for, for the stuff that you've mentioned. For note-taking, I use it for tracking ideas for blog posts and things like that. I use it to take notes during briefings that I get. Um, I use it for, for tons and tons of stuff, so it's absolutely indispensable to me. And I use tags and folders. I use the search function a lot. I find it's really good at all of that. And I've been paying for it for years, uh, literally. I mean, I, I pay for it, and I'm happy to do that. Same with Dropbox. I, I pay for Dropbox because I have a lot of stuff, probably about 150 gigs worth of stuff stored in Dropbox at this point, and I find that really indispensable. My, my one peeve about it is that it doesn't integrate very well with iWork, which is what I use uh, as my office suite, just because from a... Uh, look and feel perspective when, I, when I'm trying to churn stuff out for publication, I find it does a much better job natively than Office does. It's, it's absolutely possible to create really good looking stuff in Office. It just seems to take a lot more work to get there. I know Benedict Evans, for example, creates really nice looking slides and pictures and so on out of Office. Um, I've tried to do what I do and I work in Office and it just I keep giving up and throwing up my hands and going back to I work again. So there are definitely trade-offs to using I work, as I say, not the least of which is that the integration with Dropbox isn't great, uh, which is problematic when you go onto an iPad Pro, for example, that doesn't have its own file storage. Right. could use I- iCloud, but you know, I'm still a little skeptical about iCloud's ability to keep all my files in sync the way I want them to be. So that's my one, uh, my one sticking point there. You know, that is justified skepticism. And I've been a pretty like dedicated iCloud user just because it's really great being able to open a keynote presentation on my Mac grab my iPad, head to class, and then I've got the most recent one just ready to go mm-hmm. um, with Keynote on my iPad. Um, but just just this week, actually, I was pulling up some old class slides, and, and I had some in the Keynote folder, in the iCloud folder on my Mac. Some of the slides were were grayed out, indicating that they still need to be downloaded from the cloud. But the problem is that was showing up on all my devices, so I have no idea where they went. Luckily, I had a great Time Machine backup, so I was able to pull down those from Mm. my Time Machine backup. But who knows what happened to those files? They just mysteriously showed up as needing to be synced from iCloud, but but all of my devices were saying that. Right. So that that is kind of scary. Um, But uh, I, I... I guess I'm now putting my faith in Time Machine instead of iCloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I just we're kind of running out of time, so I just want to do kind of rapid fire. For the podcast, do you use a Blue Yeti microphone to record? Yeah, I use a Blue Yeti. You're the one who does all the editing. I, I don't know if everybody yeah. knows that. And so I actually just record in QuickTime. QuickTime yep. Player has a nice audio record feature. You can record it highest quality, and, and it, it creates a really simple file that you and I just share via Google Drive. Yeah, yeah. So I use a Blue Yeti microphone as well. Um, I use Audacity to record it just because I find it's one of the simplest interfaces for recording audio with some good options. Uh, the QuickTime player is actually really good too if you're fine with the default options. Um, occasionally, I need to change the um, the rate uh, of the audio um, for compatibility reasons for them. Other stuff that I do, and so it helps to be able to change that easily. 
Um, but then I edit in GarageBand. Um, we upload it to SoundCloud, and then it feeds from SoundCloud to Overcast, iTunes, everywhere else that you might be finding the podcast. Um, but yeah, recorded on Blue Yeti microphones at both ends. Uh, use Netflix. Do you use Amazon Prime and video that way at all? Uh, I have an Amazon Prime account. We don't use video very much there. In fact, it tends to be like if I'm, you know, if I'm if if I'm bored one night and looking for a movie to watch, I check Netflix first typically. Right. Uh, well, actually, I check VidAngel these days. I check VidAngel first. I'm not mm -hmm. sure how much longer I'll be able to do that. Because yes. <laughs> they're getting sued. yeah, they're being yeah. sued. But um, you know, I check Netflix. Uh, so Amazon Prime is kind of my last one that I turned to. We recently signed up for Hulu. But it was actually for a very specific series as a family that we're watching called Gravity Falls, a fantastic cartoon. It's probably going to be a pick of the week that I reference in an episode to come. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm really happy with Netflix, though. I, it works great. Cool. Um, so just, just briefly on photo apps, I use Instagram. I don't really use Snapchat. I dip into it every now and then just to see what everybody else is doing. But I generally don't use Snapchat. I do use Instagram. That's kind of my main photo sharing app. I'm on Facebook quite a bit, but mostly as a lurker rather than a sharer, I have to say. And also to coordinate a few things, there's a few groups that I'm a part of, including the soccer group that I play with during the week, coordinates the games there. Um, how about you? Do you use, you, I know you're on Instagram because I follow you there, but. Yeah, I use Instagram a lot. I like it quite a bit. Um, I'm also on Facebook a lot, but mostly as a lurker. I think I probably post something every, I don't know, two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. But uh, and I'm on Twitter a lot. I, I've I've tried to use Snapchat, and this is this is me officially feeling old. Actually, <laughs> like you know, I've always kind of been baffled at how older people just don't get, I don't know, some new software product or, or right. computer or product. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like I just don't understand how people can't figure that stuff out. And this is officially me feeling old because <laughs> I get into Snapchat and I am constantly befuddled by it. Like I, yeah. I, 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 it just the design language makes zero sense to me. Right, right. I, I'll, I'll join you in my feeling old there. I think. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think we could go on like this for quite a while, but I think we'll probably wrap up there. But uh, if you guys have any questions about anything else that we use or anything like that, then feel free to shoot us those questions and we can tackle them uh, sometime in the future. Um, we do have a weekly pick still. We've been going through some of the stuff that we use regularly, but Aaron had something that he wanted to recommend. So I'll, I'll briefly hand over to him to, to finish this off with that. So I'm going to recommend a book, and it's actually a classic. It's 10 years old now. Um, and deserves a lot of recognition. And if you, if, and this is going to be a book that's way outside our typical topics. Although we did cover consumer tech in Africa, you know, a little over a month ago. But, but this is this book is called The White Man's Burden, uh, written by a guy named Well, it, on the title of the, you know, his author credit is William Easterly. He actually goes by Bill Easterly. He's a former World Bank economist um, and, and a bit of a crank. He, he, he feels like most development work in, in, in that, that, that you know, rich Western countries have been doing in the developing world has been a disaster. And, and this book is sort of his core thesis. Uh, he's, he's had a follow-up book that came out a little over a year ago called The Tyranny of Experts, which is also a really well-done book that extends on the core premise of The White Man's Burden. But The White Man's Burden really is a classic in this literature of international development. If, you're, if you've ever wondered why it is that it feels like we spend a lot of money in the developing world and don't see a lot that come, to come out of it, um, there's, a, there's actually been a debate raging for, for two decades now on the proper role and use of, of development funds from rich Western countries in the de in being spent in the developing world, especially in Africa. 
And so if you want to read a great book, and I'm not recommending only because it's full of good insight, it's also well-written and pretty engaging. Um, Bill Easterly doesn't pull punches. Um, he's very frank. Um, you know, at one point he, he compares international aid to somebody farting in an elevator. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's definitely a lively read. Um, but I recommend it because it's such an important perspective on this. And, and if this is not something that's in your radar, if it's not something you spend a lot of time thinking about, but you want a good introduction to a really important and prominent perspective when it comes to development aid, uh, this is the one to read. So again, it's called The White Man's Burden. It's really cheap on Amazon, um, you know, paperback or hardcover. You can get it for, you know, the used copies for just a couple bucks. But uh, but it, it's a book that I kind of wish everybody would read, not because everybody works in international development, but because I wish everybody understood this perspective. Also, if any of you are part of you know a startup, you're going to find a lot of startup principles being promoted by Bill Easterly. He doesn't frame them as such, but you're going to see a lot of this like sort of market testing approach, letting you know uh, very much sort of a lean startup kind of perspective on the world. There's a lot of overlap between the way he views the proper role of development aid and the way that people view the proper approach to startups. So you're going to find some fascinating parallels there in that way as well. So again, the book is called The White Man's Burden, uh, Why the West's Efforts to Aid the Rest Have Done So Much Ill and So Little Good by William Easterly. All right, cool. Thank you, Aaron. Well, we'll wrap up with that. Thank you for joining us as always. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. Uh, and we will be with you again next week. Thanks.